For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta uh, uh, uh. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to...
Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogako Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. Good evening. Shall I just start in? Sure. Yes. All right. I'm Brian Taylor. I think I know most of you. Um, thank you, Tygen, for inviting me once more to give a talk. I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who might be inclined to um, attend the Wednesday night Hyde Park group, I'll be giving the same talk Wednesday, so you should keep that in mind. The topic that I've chosen for tonight um, is going to have to do with engagement and non-attachment. Um, the first and second of the noble truths are about suffering and the cause of suffering, which is what is traditionally been called desire, but it could also be called attachment, uh, or sometimes attachment and aversion, uh, attaching to things that we that we want to have happen or things, things, objects that we want and uh, being averse to things that we don't want to have happen or to people or whatever circumstances uh, we want to try to avoid. And that we go through our life uh, on a kind of a, a roller coaster or jerked back and forth between temporarily getting what we want and temporarily avoiding the things we don't want and making all these efforts to work life out to, to uh, take care of itself in the way that uh, suits us. And that this, this wheel of samsara, as it's called, is, uh, is the cause of suffering. And that's at the very basic uh, level of, of what, what uh, Buddhism has to offer. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's easy to say, well, Samsara, uh, rather uh, finding liberation from samsara, is simply a matter of um, letting go of our attachments. It sounds simple, but of course it's it's tricky, and um, there are a lot of reasons for why it is so tricky. First of all, our attachments are deep rooted. They they go back to our early childhood. They go back to the way we were raised, our culture. 
um, they're reinforced because they sort of work uh, over time. Uh, we sort of get what we want and we sort of avoid what we don't want. And, and our methods of doing those things, while they may cause us suffering, um, sort of work. Um, some attachments, it's also tricky because some attachments are normal and healthy uh, attachments to certain people. I'm certainly attached to um, my wife, my grandchild, uh, to, to this sangha. Um, we can be attached to um, our health, our physical health, to, to justice. I mean, I, I was definitely attached to um, things moving in a direction that I wanted them to during the last election cycle. Um, we, we can be attached to avoiding pain, and the greater the pain, the more ardent our desire to do something about it is. Um, and so, you know, in, in a good way, if, if, if our attachments are, are these kinds of healthy ones, we might call that uh, engagement rather than attachment. It, it's, um, it's how we feel passionate about things in life and, and uh, our desire uh, for good for ourselves and for others. There's a, there's a kind of attachment there, which is uh, maybe better called engagement. But it's also tricky because some unattachments or detachments are unhealthy. Um, I remember a story long ago, I don't know if it's true, but it illustrates a lot of a woman who was grieving the loss of her husband and some um, well-meaning but uh, really inept clergy person uh, in his pastoral call to her said, my dear, my gift to you is my detachment. <laughs> as, as if that was supposed to make her feel better uh, because he wasn't all caught up in her emotional situation. Um, and the, the, the myth there is that we can transcend our humanity, that we can somehow rise above it all. And Um, we also might imagine that moving from attachment to unattachment is linear. That first we're attached and then we get enlightened and we're no longer attached. Um, so what is a way to approach these, these two dynamics of, of engagement and non-attachment? We might start by, by valuing our desires, but noticing uh, how they get us into trouble. I I notice when I'm doing woodworking, I, I love to do woodworking. I have a, a shop here at my house that is, I just finished a project for a, a Christmas present. And I find when I'm doing woodworking, I am so absorbed in it. Um, I, I'm just completely into it. And it, it is so satisfying to do it, uh, just the process of doing it and, and the result as well. Um, that I sort of lose myself. But I notice that it gets me into trouble when I'm just working to get it done. And I find myself tense. I'm, I'm wanting to finish the damn project or I'm just anxious to, to, uh, to bring about some kind of perfection that, in fact, I can't do. And that's usually when uh, I make mistakes and sometimes it becomes dangerous with power tools. Um, Another example is that I'm, I'm currently involved directly in a condominium lawsuit with um, 15 other members of our condominium association. And I really want it to go well. I, you know, <laughs> I really want the, the lawyers to represent us well, and, and I want the judge to, you know, be fair. And, I, and I, 
I don't want to pay the kind of money that might come out of it if it goes in a way that I don't want it to go over, over the years ahead. So I'm, I'm attached to the outcome. And sometimes that, you know, very good desire that something good happen here for all concerned becomes um, anger at my other condominium owners. It becomes uh, fear, you know, that things are going to go terribly when I'm going to be out on the street or something ridiculous. Um, I can also be attached to uh, aspiring for unattachment. You know, I, I really, I think it's a, it's bodhicitta. It's a good desire to want to be free, to want to be liberated from the things that keep us bound up in our desires, our aversions and attachments. But sometimes I can get attached to the delusion of attainment. That, that if I just work hard enough or have the right insight or read the right books or, or whatever, um, I will attain a state uh, that finally is free. Um, and in all of those examples that I use, you know, whether it's something as kind of trivial as woodworking or, or a lawsuit or our own bodhicitta, it starts with a good desire, a human desire, something good that we want. And it, and it can become uh, something that is, is self-destructive and destructive to other people as well. <clears throat> so um, the question is, how do we engage in that relationship between engagement and non-attachment or desire and non-attachment? And, and, and perhaps as I thought about this, I thought maybe it's, it has something to do with the relationship between the two, uh, not a movement out of one into another or an affirmation of one and a negation of the other, but in, a, in the relationship between the two. Um, and some of it is sequential. I mean, the, the longer we practice, the less, the, the more we see our attachments and the more we see where our, our legitimate desires become harmful and, and we learn how to let go as, as we go along. And over the years, um, we become freer. That, that's to be sure. But I'm also interested in a relationship between desire and non-attachment that is more simultaneous, uh, that, that where both are present, um, and there's some kind of a dynamic happening, a tension between the two that, that we work with or play with. And as I was thinking about this, one of the things that came to mind, and, and naturally it comes to mind for me, um, because of my Christian background this time of year, is the nativity scene. Now, some of you may be very, um, have a lot of experience with, you know, being around Christmas Eve services with the manger and the shepherds and, you know, all that, the whole story, the whole, the whole myth of what supposedly happened uh, that night. Um, and some of you have maybe just barely familiar with it and see stuff on television or have, have the um, sort of j- just a sense that there are shepherds and there are, you know, various figures in this tableau. But what has always interested me in this tableau, this myth, 
it are the dynamics of darkness and light. And, and it's a good time to be thinking about it. Of course, it's, it's why the Christian, Christmas holiday is on the solstice. And they chose this time because it was a, a story about darkness and light. And, and we have the solstice. And the darkness that is involved there is, is profound in terms of the human uh, engagement with the difficulties of life and the desire for things to not go badly, but they were going badly. And so you have this woman who's, who's, you know, eight, nine months pregnant on a donkey heading 100 miles from Bethlehem down to, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem for a stupid Roman census so that the Romans could count all the people and tax them. And, and they get to this place where they're from and there's absolutely no place to stay and they end up in a barn with these animals. It's cold. They're scared. Uh, they're in a strange place. Um, and, you know, before long... Uh, Herod the king is is uh, scared that this supposed Jewish new Jewish king is arising in the form of a baby, and so he has all of the newborn boys killed. And there's this massacre that happens all around them, and they they take off again on a donkey with this newborn baby and go down to Egypt to hide. Um, so all of this is happening, and you can imagine the human natural human feelings of fear and total engagement and, and aversion that's happening for these people. And yet, in that story, there's this star in the sky, there's these angels in the sky, there's, um, there's these shepherds, there's uh, a, a sense of peace, and, and everything is suffused by, by love and an innocent baby. And so there's something incredibly transcendent that opens up. It's like the skies open and, and everything is in harmony, complete harmony in this beautiful tableau in the midst of this darkness and engagement with the most difficult parts of the human experience. And they're simultaneous. And I think that that's one of the reasons why that myth, that tableau is so moving for people on an unconscious level. They encounter it, and it has something to do with their lives. You know, life is tough, and and it's tough now. And and with this pandemic and and things getting a lot worse, a lot faster, uh, and the economy the way it is, and people being thrown out of their their homes, you know, because of evictions and the the stupid stuff that's going on politically, it's just nonsense, and, and the suffering that's caused by all of that. Uh, it's it's a hard time, and and yet something like the Christ, the, the nativity uh, tableau, and something like the hope of the winter solstice that light is appearing, opens it up. In the midst of all this, it opens it up to a bigger reality uh, that is always there, that is perfect harmony, that is perfect peace that is complete interconnection uh, with nothing to fear. Um, and, and somehow or another, those are simultaneous. Um, and, and I think it, it says something about a way to, one way to approach our attachment and aversion on the one hand, and our freedom, our liberation from... We find a way of 
um, experiencing both and contextualizing the um, the attachment in, in the context of, of the transcendent. Shinryu Suzuki, uh, in somewhere in, in one of his talks, uh, said this, and I, I uh, have always held it close. Buddhas are not disturbed by something bad or ecstatic about something good. The basic tone of their life remains the same. In it, there are happy melodies and some sad melodies. When it is hot or when they are sad, they can be completely involved in being hot or being sad without caring for happiness. If you do worry, you will see it like something in a novel. To read it is very interesting, but it is not something to fear. So bad things happen, and we naturally want to avoid them. Those are sad melodies in life, and, and we can be completely involved in the sadness. Happy things happen, and we naturally want to have those and keep those. Those are the happy melodies, and we want, we want to keep them. We are human. We're not going to arrive through Zen at some kind of blank, neutral state. That's not what it's about. But because we learn to see these ups and downs as impermanent as, and as changing, we can also, at the same time, simultaneously experience a basic tone that is constant. We can be completely involved in being hot or being sad without being disturbed by them because this basic tone is something we taste and we know. And, and we know it is as real, it is more real, it is ultimately real than the ups and the downs. It, it is called various things, Buddha nature, big mind. Uh, it is the unbounded self as a part of everything. Now, Shunryu Suzuki calls this kind of a shift where, where we're, we're not living according to how well life is going for us and how well we're able to work things out to suit our attachments and avoid things that we don't want. The shift from that kind of life, which most people live by, to a life that is able to be involved in being hot or being sad without being disturbed by them because we know Buddha nature. That shift is profound. He calls it changing the very foundation of our life. Now, part of it, in terms of what we learn along the way in this direction, has to do with dropping our narrative about the circumstances, you know, the hotness, the sadness, uh, the difficulties of the pandemic, the, the ridiculous political things that have been going on uh, of late, dropping our narrative about it. Um, our narratives are going on all the time about our ups and downs. What is this? Why is this? How can I, how can I keep it? How can I avoid it? What, how long will it last? Where's it going? Uh, how can I fix it? Uh, how is this making me look? Whatever, whatever our narrative is, and it can be anything. Because, because the happiness that, that comes from uh, Buddha nature is, has nothing to do with our narrative. Uh, the narrative cannot be fulfilled in happiness because it is some form of delusion. I had a a big lesson about this um, in the last few years uh, around my own state of mind relating to um, my wife's health condition. She had a life-threatening illness. She had a um, 
organ transplant. There was a lot of complication. There was a lot of suffering for a long time. And she was in trouble. And um, of course, (laughs) I was attached. Of course, I wanted things to work out a certain way and, and wanted to avoid certain things from happening. And I would find myself just just gripped by attachment, uh, absolutely gripped by wanting things to be a certain way and knowing that I couldn't control it. And and the great learning for me, um, which is something I always had known, but it, it, it became more real, is that there was simultaneously something infinite, something vast, something that was already completely harmonious. And I could experience it at the same time, the same time as the fear and the desire. I could open up to that something that is Buddha nature, that is constantly changing and evolving, but is always interconnected and is always good. Uh, I learned it was possible um, through Zazen, because in Zazen, we practice this very thing. We, we, we sit down, we, we notice our brain activity, we, we see the very things that we're attached to and averse to. Uh, we might be having a mood or we might be stressed out about something that's going on in our life. And, and we notice how easy it is to get caught up in those things and, and see only that as if they are real and ultimate in some way and as if they define us. And we learn also in Zazen how to let that be, how to let it be present without letting it define us and being open to more than that. And and the more than that is not something we have to manufacture. It's not something that we have to uh, create or find. It emerges As as we let things be what they are something else emerges. And we see that what we're experiencing is a temporary weather system, whether they're just random thoughts or worries that we have or a a terrible life circumstance. We see that it's a temporary weather system and that outside of that weather system, there is the universe. Um, it's, It's like that nativity scene again. You know, there's this chaos going around the Holy Family, and and then there's this universe with the stars in the sky and the angels in the heavens. Um, And when Zazen, we we open the hand of thought, we we, we grip around these things we're attached to, and then we release, we open the hand of thought, and there is something there that is interbeing, that is all change and one vast organism that we are a part of that includes the self or, or is the self. So our, our engagement with Zazen uh, is, is something that is in the context of Buddha nature. We may feel our uh, hotness, our sadness, our ups and downs, our fears, our hopes, but we experience them, as Shunri Suzuki said, as if they're something interesting, perhaps in a novel, uh, or, or to use another metaphor, um, there are weather systems that are temporarily moving through because we know uh, that which is so much more than that. Um, and I think 
what begins to happen is that we experience that in our life circumstances as well. Zazen teaches us that in a very focused, condensed way, like kind of a workshop where, where we practice it day after day after day. And then it, it happens naturally in life, you know, when, when we're in the midst of something. It's not something we have to decide to do. Um, and it, but it brings us to a place of being able to engage and to care, uh, to care deeply about social justice, to care deeply about uh, our own health, to care deeply about people we care about, uh, the state of the world around us, and to engage with it without feeling as if that's all there is. And if things don't work out, it's going to be horrible um, because we're in touch with something much more. So um, that's a kind of um, seasonal thought for you. And and it's uh, hopefully tied into something in your own life that has to do with uh, attachment, desire, and non-attachment and and how you work with with the dynamic between those. So I would uh, love to have some conversation at this point about about these things. And I think I can see all of you. So if you just want to either just speak up or hold your hand up. um. Yes, Wade. Um, that was a fantastic talk. Thank you so much. Um, I loved that metaphor about weather. That was not one that I'd heard before, mm. um, and it made me it made me think of the difference between the weather and the climate. Mm. Um, that the weather, you know, changes day to day as you're talking about, but the climate is something that one hopes is uh, you know fairly fairly steady. Um, so. That reminded me of, well, also the, your metaphor about um, music and that the tone of a, of a Buddha's life is, is even, even though there are happy and sad melodies. It's like the melodies are the weather and the, the overall tone is, is the climate. So I, I found that a helpful metaphor. Thank you. And is that, is that something that um, you feel familiar with in your, your life and practice? Or how would you describe it in your own life and, and practice? Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess on a, on a personal note, like I've, I've struggled with depression for years, um, 15 years or something. And I've gone through really bad periods and periods where, you know, I could forget that fact. Um, and, and so I think lately I feel like I've been doing very good and I have happy days and sad days but the climate is a more mild climate Hmm. versus other periods in my life where I would have happy days and sad days, but the, the climate was um, stormy, Mm -hmm. shall we say? Um, So maybe that's not a practice example, uh, though I think practice has played into the fact that I feel more stable than I did two years ago when I started, for instance. Mm. Um, but that's definitely a, an example. That's an example 
that is definitely something that I've felt. And so I'm, I'm very grateful right now that my, my climate is, is mild. Um, yeah, another, another way of perhaps looking at that is, is um, what we identify with, which is a form of attachment, to, to identify with how you're doing, you know, your, your moods or your depression or lack of depression or whatever. And over time, maybe in, in, uh, in Zen, we learn to identify with not having an identity, you know, not, not having self, but being part of life as it is, as it evolves. Um, and that is a, a kind of identification um, that um, teaches us, perhaps, in a way that circumstances or moods or mental states uh, it is very different from that, kind of independent from it in a way. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to yeah. speak up because uh, I can't raise my hand somehow because my video is off. Um, I'm thinking about that. Is, is it? Is that David? Oh, okay. David Weiner. Okay. David Weiner. Um, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Shows you how focused I am. Um, that sometimes you talk about, you're talking about engagement and it, it, what it is, it, it's, it's, and you're talking about the self and, and losing the self. I find I haven't done it in a long time because of COVID, but I find when I visit as a volunteer chaplain that I visit other people, I feel very much myself, I am myself, but I'm there for others. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, it's, it, and I also throw this open to Tigan too, that you can have yourself, but you can also find yourself with the other. And it, it, it's a strange mix because sometimes I come away like I just like disappear in the, for a moment because I'm just so much with that person yet I'm still very much me. Um, it's almost like the, all the jewels in, in Indra's net, they all exist, and they're all reflecting each other and what, what, is it, what is in each other. And so each jewel does not, the jewels don't exist. They all exist. But it's a matter of are they existing all by themselves? Are they existing in a way that they're not reflective and not connected? And I think that's important. And that's where engagement comes in. I can be with somebody, but at the same time, not be attached to what come, what's the outcome. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, being well, with what people, you, Go ahead. Yeah, being with people who are dying. And I've been with people while, while they were die, literally dying. And it's not that, you know, you don't want them to die. At the same time, it's a fact of life. You know, they're dying. And all I could do is just be there with them and for them. And so it brings out who I am as a person, who I am as an individual, yet at the same time I'm being engaged with that person so that there's 
that sense of engagement, but there's really no attachment to the outcome because the outcome, so to speak, is fixed. They're going to die, <laughs> you know, in that sense. So I'm, I'm curious on, on your thoughts on that. Well, what you started with really struck me, um, and I don't know whether this is related or not, but it, it came to mind for me, was when you're, I know what you're talking about, when you're, when you're in a situation where you're, you uh, kind of disappear uh, because yeah. you are in service to the, the whole. Yeah. Reminds, and the other, as, of course. Yeah. Um, reminds me of, uh, isn't it Dongshan, the, the saying of, uh, um, I am not it, it is now me. Yeah. Um, that, that when, when, when you are it, <laughs> you know, you, you would walk into that, that hospice room full of yourself, you know, with all sorts of advice. And um, it would be David all over the place, you know, and that's, that's not helpful. And, and that's very egocentric. But yeah. when, you, when you are, in fact, the situation, and, 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 and the person in front of you, you, in a sense, disappear, and it becomes you. you. You are not it, it is now you. Is that part of what you're talking about there? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And that's, that's a good example of an, another way of talking about um, unattachment, because it's really not being attached to the self and its, its desires and its needs and its hopes and fears at all. It's, it's identifying with um, life arising and passing away in front of you and being a part of that instead. Tygen, you were going to say something? Yeah, um, this, thank you, and thank you for your talk, Brian. And this is, kind, uh, this is indirectly a response to what David Weiner just, rose, uh, just brought up, but um, I really loved what you said, Brian, um, but it sort of felt a little bit incomplete for me. Mm. Uh, so uh, you were talking about engagement and non-attachment. And uh, our practice is about balance. So I thought you did a wonderful job of talking about how uh, to, uh, to witness non-attachment in the, in the context of engagement. But then uh, this is a dynamic thing, and, it's, and, and I may have not heard part of what you were saying, but, but the point is how do you balance those two? So there's uh, engagement, uh, moving to non-attachment, uh, f- seeing how you can be not attached to set the outcome in terms of your activity. But the other side of that then going back is, well, then how do, does one from that place of non-attachment engage? Right. And I think, and right. I think that's what David was talking about. So I, I just, maybe this was me, but I just felt a little uh, yeah. imbalance there that, you know, engagement in terms of how, you know, we, we talk about appropriate response. So from the place of non-attachment, which you really wonderfully expressed, then how do we come back and engage, and from some point of view, it's not about self or non-self, whether there's a self there or a not-self there. The, not, the self is a not-self, the not-self is a self, whatever. It's everything, as you said. It's not the ego self projecting out. But um, 
how do we then act in, and you know this, I, I mean, I, I know this in your practice, Brian, but how do we, uh, but the question, and this is a little bit subtle, but how do we both from non-engagement find non-attachment, but also from that space that we yeah. meet in Zazen of really openness and, and being able to, you, you express it so well, of being able to just witness what's happening, then come back to actually respond appropriately, helpfully. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what I wanted to say. That's a very, very good way of putting it, a very helpful reminder. And I think of those situations where I have been in a work situation where things have been very conflicted and very difficult, and I've not been handling it very well because of my attachments and my fears. And working with it and sitting with that uh, in Zazen and being present to my own attachment and, and coming to a place of more openness and, and freedom and liberation, a number of times I found that I could go back into that conflicted situation or that conflicted relationship and just be clear and just be, you know, not, not scary <laughs> and not, you know, not, not afraid uh, and just, enter into it with a sense of uh, peace because I'm not, I'm not that concerned about the outcome. And, and I, you know, this is just where I am. And, 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 and things tended to work out <laughs> when I was able to get to that point, but that's a very yeah. good reminder. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not about going back and fixing things because right. sometimes you can't, but no, it's, it's bring a certain harmony into the situation with you. Yeah, but then also actively responding. Yeah. When you see some way to actively appropriately respond that might be helpful, and that's sure. really subtle and really difficult and really sure. kind of advanced practice, but both sides are important. Yeah. So that, that's what, what I wanted to say. Thank you. But I'm sure other people have uh, comments as well. Yes, Ian. And then you have to unmute there. Hi, Brian. Um, once you've noticed an attachment or that you're identifying with something, uh, what is this process like of opening the hand of thought and how can we practice it? Is it something that arises naturally from our uh, Zazen practice or is it kind of um, like a method? Um, I, I don't... I don't relate to it as a, as a method or a technique. Um, maybe it's a, uh, just for me, a, a kind of a helpful uh, trigger, you know, kind of a reminder. At, uh, it's hard to describe. Um, some people might say let, let and go. Uh, it's never been particularly helpful uh, image for me. Um, another image that comes to mind for me is is kind of, it's, I've talked to Tagen about this. Sometimes I feel as if in Zazen, there's this, there's this very slow kind of constriction in my thinking around things and then opening up and then kind of constricting again very slowly and then opening up. Um, and I, I don't know how to describe it in terms of how I do that. Um, 
And I think everybody has to find their own way. Um, what, what do you have an experience of that? Do you know what that's? <clears throat> a little bit. I mean, that's uh, letting go is a big part of the practice. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, if this hand of thought is something separate from letting go. I think it's very, very uh, similar. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Um, are there others that, that might have a, an answer to that? Um, I think Fushin has a hand up. Fushin? Yes. Yes. Sorry, Mike, do you want to talk? Oh, yeah, Mike, you, were, you had your hand up, too. It might have been something different, but that's okay. No, if you, if you have an answer, Fushin, I can, I can wait until you're finished. Well, I was just going to say that um, we can try to hold on to stuff, but it really doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, opening the hand of thought is realizing that trying to hold on to stuff doesn't work. And, uh, you know, I encourage people sometimes to really try to hold on to stuff because yeah. you really find out that, guess what, you can't do it. Hmm. And, you know, it can be kind of disappointing, <laughs> but actually it's very liberating. Hmm. So that, that's kind of how I, how I approach it. Is there nothing to hold on to? Not a thing. Right. Yeah, sometimes a, a, a phrase goes through my mind at that moment of, you don't have to sort this out. You, you can't sort this out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's silly in a way. And that's maybe what Fushin is saying. Mike, what was your, on your mind? You, you wanted to say something? <clears throat> yeah, uh, first off, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, uh, it brought up a question for me, and, and it gave me a little bit of insight in the discussion about um, things like social, social justice, where, um, you know, I, and as many other people who are involved in it, um, are very attached to the outcome because, um, you know, it affects so many people, uh, everyone, I guess. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's hard to let go of that kind of attachment. And sometimes I get into a zone where I feel that I need to just work harder and, you know, be more active and, you know, uh, do all these things. Um, and I get so attached and it's, it's hard for me sometimes to come back. And I really enjoyed that. I, um, uh, I think you were talking about uh, the major setting and kind of that duality, uh, if I can use the word, where, um, you know, there's chaos and then kind of calm all at once and um, kind of allowing both of those things to happen, um, which was, which is really helpful insight. But um, I'd, I'd definitely be curious, Brian and, and Tiger and other people um, about your thoughts about, especially regarding things like social justice politics, where um, you're attached to something that um, affects humanity. Um, so that was, that was, that's what was on my mind. Yeah. I, I can say something about that. Um, years ago, I, I, I was very, very involved in, uh, the, um, political and public, um, controversies that were going on. I was right in the middle of it around, um, 
gay and lesbian people in the church. And, um, and, I, and, and there was a lot of almost like, well, it was, it was just ugly stuff going on and, and um, accusations and uh, threats and all sorts of things. And what was most helpful for me in that situation, it was, I, I was going to stay in, engaged. There was no question about that and see it through all the way. Um, but I had to be very careful because um, my anger and my fear would get triggered. Uh, and I became attuned to when it was getting triggered. And I had to be very careful because then it becomes destructive. And even though I might be working in a good cause, um, how I was going about it was going to be harmful. First of all, to myself, um, but also to people around me. And it was going to even, it was even going to harm the cause. Um, and I had to learn how to deal with my attachment um, around that. And it's, there's no reason why you can't deal with your attachment and at the same time stay completely engaged. Um, but if you don't deal with your attachment and you stay engaged, you, you may end up um, causing some harm. And it's, it's a matter of, for me, it was a matter of attunement. Um, noticing what, it's like Joko Beck, my teacher from years ago, Zen teacher in San Diego, used to talk about how um, we have these, these physical, this physical reactivity inside ourselves that function like warning lights on a dashboard. Um, you know, it's like the oil light goes on, boom, you know. <laughs> it's sort of like, and I, I can feel that in myself. I can feel the, you know, low on oil coming on, you know, breaks out or whatever. And I can feel that. And, and that's when I try to stop and, and be present to that and, and ask myself in a way, what, what is this? What is this? Um, as a follow-up, there, there, um, I'm reading a book called Love and Rage by Lama Rod Owens. Um, mm. I think he practices in a different lineage. Um, and he's a, a queer black man. And the book is about him um, dealing with his anger. Um, but he talks about um, creating a process, kind of exactly what you described, where he, um, uh, when he feels a feeling, um, he feels how it feels in his body. You know, he feels like a stomach churn or his jaw clenches or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and he allows himself to feel that feeling. It's like, oh, this is what my anger or whatever this feeling feels like in my body. Um, mm -hmm. And then, like, experiencing that. And then once you have that physicality, being um, allowing to um, to let it go, which is easier said than done, of course. But, um, but it reminded me of that. Um, if you haven't read that book, you should. It's, it's really good. I'd recommend it. That's helpful. What's the name of the book again? A Love and Rage by Lama. I can type it in the chat. By Lama Rod Owens. And, you know, practicing like that over time has the result of, of getting to a place of greater clarity since we can, as, as Titan was pointing out, re-engage um, without doing as much harm. If I may, again, uh, something you brought up about attachment and, and social justice. Um, I know that, you know, in my everyday life, <laughs> I'm pretty an uh, egocentric person and looking out for myself and doing my stuff. I'm still trapped in samsara. 
And it's interesting that when I go to hospice work, that all falls away. Hmm. And that's, that, that's what's really interesting. And what's, I'm getting something coming up in a little bit with some of the political talk that we've had recently on Friday mornings, um, my rage coming up on social justice and realizing I have to take a look. The same thing as when I go into hospice, I have to take a look at what the other person is at. What is going on in that person's mind that they are so fearful, that they are so afraid and they are so angry that they're lashing out at, quote, my side, um, that they, they can't accept. You know, look at the polarization that we have in our country. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're so attached to our own way, we're not listening to each other. And the moment I start to listen to each other, and I related this on last Friday about when I, we're at a demonstration and I'm seeing all these cops and I'm going, oh, God, the pigs, you know, going back to the 60s, you know. Uh, and then Hogetsu gets up and starts talking to the policeman. And all of a sudden, I let go, and I go up, and I start talking to the policeman. And all of a sudden, that whole element of rage and separation disappeared. And we're just people talking to one another. And I think that's part of the thing is, is in a sense, you could be attached, like we were talking, Brian, being attached is something that we're very, very, uh, we consider very important. At the same time, maybe t- turning that a little bit and looking at the other and finding out what's going on with the other so we can find a way that we can bond and not have to be so separate. And that's just the thought. Yes, Tygen. Yeah. Um, going back directly to Mike's question, uh, uh, non-attachment, I, I, sometimes it's translated as detachment, which I don't like because non-attachment doesn't mean not caring. So if you're involved in some uh, working for some cause or you know, some social issue and so forth, um, the point isn't to you know just give up or to not engage in that and to not care about it, but not to get caught in uh, particular outcomes particular results um, that we have to see those that kind of work and it applies to social justice work it also applies to sangha it also applies to how we practice together to see it in, in a longer uh, a, a longer scope a longer time scheme so we don't know the results of our actions and if we're hung up on getting some particular result to you know, getting some particular election result, for example, uh, then, uh, you know, we can get really caught up in that and that can eat up, eat, eat at us. I liked what you were saying. And I've heard, I've heard a lot about that, about Lamarado Owens. I haven't had a chance to read him yet, but I thank you for mentioning him. But, you know, to fit, Zazen gives us the chance to physically feel the effects of our attachment. So, again, it's not about not caring but just not holding on to some idea of what it should, what the goal should look like, because all of our efforts do have some effect, and we don't necessarily see how that will culminate. So anyway, 
Thank you for the question. Fushin, I think, has her hand up, or is that your cat's hand, tail? Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love seeing everybody's cats. Very... Yes, David. David. David Ray. David, yeah. David? Yes, it took me a moment. I, I, the yeah, second attempt okay. to unmute worked. Thank you very much for that talk, Brian. Um, I have a question about the relationship between the, the early things that you said about attachment or attachments, like appropriate attachments and not appropriate attachments, and the, and then what you said in the second half of the talk about a kind of dialectic or you know not non dualist coexistence of of um, attachment and non attachment, and I'm partly thinking about this because I'm in this um, eightfold path study group, and the the language of of that of the the text that we're reading sounds. Sounds a lot of the time sounds very dualistic. I mean, even to talk about right effort and right livelihood, you know, implies that there's wrong livelihood and, and wrong effort, and that there are you know right attachments and wrong attachments. And at the beginning of your, your talk, you know, you, you you were talking that way. So how how can I understand the relationship between you know so on the one hand saying well there are attachments and attachments there there are some attachments that I'm going to go for and not go for others, and that that's part of my ethical development but but then on the other hand saying well no actually it's really that there's there's this dialectic this coexistence between mm -hmm. attachment and 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 non-attachment i wonder if in response um it might have something to do with um thinking of it not so much as certain kinds of attachments are good or bad but rather how we live with desire, how we live with um, things that we want or things that we don't want. Um, you know, how, how, do we, how do we experience those? And when, when do those things become what Buddhism calls attachment? Uh, the, way we are, the way we are living with our desire, when, when, how does it become attachment and something that um, creates suffering? Or how does what moving towards what something we want or or we think is good and, and are trying to bring about, how is that selfless and helpful? Um, I guess that I was that's what I was trying to get at in the second part of the talk. Um, does that respond to your question, David? It does. So um I mean I would I would love to talk with you more about it. I'm just like, like how to, for, did, did the, did the definition of attachment sort of move, did it sort of move dialectically in, in your talk from the, from the beginning to the end? It probably did. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, that's great. I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would love to talk with you more about it some other time. Thank you. Well, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll be looking at it again before I talk on Wednesday and I'll see, see what I see. Thanks for raising that. Yes, Doug. 
thank you very much. Um, I'm already looking forward to Wednesday. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I see it. Um, I'm hearing something about um, how, how my passion, and I'm, I'm reminded, like last night I had this big debate um, with kind of a, not really someone from the other camp, but, but uh, um, someone that, you know, just wasn't much of a mask wearer and uh, um, not like a hardcore Trumpian, but just someone who, uh, who had a lot of mixed ideas, you know, that, that, uh, there were, they were doing a bunch of good things for the, for, uh, in ecology, you know, and, and that, uh, the EPA was, you know, they're doing some great things with the ocean. <laughs> I just was going, I was going ballistic and, and I know it's my passion about these issues, you know, and, um, and I think, I think it was that you, you pointed out how, how my passion is about that sort of thing is fine, but also I have to be a little bit mindful of do no harm, appropriate response. Um, and that this might, you know, that, that I'm might learn something, you know, I, yeah. I get to the point where I get very close minded and, uh, and, I don't think that I could go forward by, and oftentimes I, I don't continue any of the debates, you know, because I'm sure most of us don't. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in being kind and knowing that some of these people, you know, like this particular person is, is a very kind person. And um, I just wished he didn't have all this bad information. You know, I think of, uh, that scientist that says, you know, we sometimes we have just enough information to be sure we're right and not enough information to know we're wrong, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, with my, I was noticing today, I, I must be doing something right, and I and I feel so empowered now from your talk that I, you know, I have a new cushion and I'm just all elated about this new cushion. I I bought an air cushion. And that, that wasn't quite right. The blow up one. And now I got the real deal, you know, and, um, and, and it just, it feels so, so great, you know? And I was noticing that, um, there were a lot of distractions and I, I found a connection between the, uh, sitting, you know, if I can get the form of sitting more, you know, more specifically, and I, I can sit real straight and I can, I, I can do, because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a year, but I still think I'm very new at this. And, uh, the, uh, and I, you know, kind of been doing strange meditations that weren't like this for decades, but, um, you know, with the, with the breath and, and, and the sitting that I'm doing now, it's, it's, it seems very much about form and I'm noticing that the more I get the form and I get, and I'm sitting better, I'm sitting more correctly, the more distractions I don't notice. Hmm. I kind of think 
that there's a correlation there, you know, with what you're, with the attachment. I have this attachment about my cushion. I have this attachment about my monkey brain. I have this attachment that, and I, and I just keep letting go with the breath. And, and it's, it, every day it gets, I, I, it seems like a little shorter time. And, and, uh, and I, I feel a little, um, a little stronger and a little, little happier maybe, or, or a little more capable of, of, uh, of, uh, of dealing. And I, and, and I, and I'm surprised about that, you know, that, that, that that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm okay with wherever we're going. And, and I, and I think that's, that's letting go of the attachments. That's really uh, beautiful. I, you know, there's a saying, Zazen does Zazen. Um, the, the problem is when the ego gets involved, whether it's arguing with somebody about climate issues, right. you know, and the question is really, how, how am I getting hooked here? How, how is this about me internally, you know, that I am getting hooked? To be right. I got to be right. Well, whatever <laughs> it is, you know, whatever it yeah. is, it's, it's always yeah. about me if I'm getting hooked. And right. meditation can be the same thing. It's, it's um, giving yourself to the form, which is what you're describing doing by trying to learn an upright posture and just, just do it. Zazen does Zazen. And there's a sense in which um, it's not about you at that point. It's not about you doing it. It's, it's, it's doing it. And, and that might be true in, in some of our encounters with people too. It's not about us managing a conversation, but rather uh, the conversation happening and us really being present uh, and allowing, allowing things to take place on, in their own way and, and sort of uh, a kind of inherent wisdom arising. Tygen, I don't know if you want to respond to that. That's kind of up your alley there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, no. I just wanted to say one thing to Doug that um, that the part of what all that you said that impressed me was your confession that you were that you were being closed minded, and just to notice that is really wonderful. So I, I'm glad that you're enjoying zazen. Zazen does um, zazen works if you stick to it. Um, and, and and are steady with it, but what it means that it works is not our idea of that. <laughs> anyway, I, I appreciate your your uh, confession and expression of your closed mindedness. That was really lovely. Thank you. Wade, how are we doing on time? Is it uh, approaching the bewitching hour? I I believe so. Um, I, I'm ready to do the Bodhisattva vows. I don't know if Tygum would care to entertain another question, or should we move on? Any uh, if, somebody, if somebody who hasn't spoke, has spoken has something they really want to say, please do. Otherwise, we can go to the four Bodhisattva vows. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, I will put that on the screen in case... Someone here would find that useful. Um, a moment.
Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.